Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever been dumped before. Uh, but it's not a pleasant experience. And, you know, afterward, you, you kind of like going through your mind, you're trying to figure out like what was wrong, like where, did I miss the signs, what could I have done differently? And, and it makes it especially hard if it kind of just like came out of the blue, like if you were blindsided by it, like you just didn't expect it coming. And, and if you've ever been there and you start to look back, you start to realize that probably there were warning signs that you missed. There were, there were indications that the relationship was in crisis for a long time and if we were looking at the right warning signs, we probably could have known and been aware and maybe even done something about it. And the, the church in Corinth, in the, the first century, these Christians, these followers of Jesus, their relationship with God was in crisis. And they had no idea. They missed the warning signs, and Paul comes in to to warn them, let them know, you guys, you guys are looking at the wrong things. Your relationship was in crisis. And yes, we are back in our First Corinthians series. I know you guys have missed it over the last six weeks. By the way, this is officially the longest series ever done at Beacon Church. Uh, and we're only at chapter 10 of 16 chapters, so we got a long way to go. I hope you've been enjoying it. But of course, First Corinthians, there's so much rich text here that Paul uh, wrote to the first century church in Corinth that is still so applicable to us today. And so we're going to keep pressing along into it as long as we find value from it. And guess what? There's a lot of value in it. So uh, we're excited to be back in this series, and we'll be kind of bouncing in and out of it probably for the next several months, even as we uh, go into summer. But we're back in 1 Corinthians, and Paul is challenging the church in Corinth because their relationship was in crisis, and they didn't see it. But the way that he says it, what he has to say, like the, the way that he kind of phrases this warning is in such a way that I think for us, for each of us, it should set off some alarm bells. Because look at what he says. In verse 12 of chapter 10, he says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And, and what gets me about this is his audience. It's not the people that, you know, do you think you're in a precarious position? Do you think your relationship with Jesus is like kind of on the rocks? No, he says, if you think you're standing firm. A few weeks ago, Robert did an informal poll here on a Sunday and kind of on index cards, asked a few questions. And through that poll, we found out that most everybody in this room, most everybody in this room feels like they are standing firm in their faith. And Paul says there is a category of thinking you're standing firm but being in a precarious position. That you could think that the relationship with God is in a good place and it be in crisis. And this is where the, the church in Corinth was. And so we're going to kind of go through what Paul says leading up to this. All right, he, he kind of takes the, the church in Corinth through and he, he actually takes them through the story of the nation of Israel while they were wandering through the wilderness, all right? And so it's actually a little bit like, like biblical inception. 
So it's like a Bible story inside of a Bible story, inside of a Bible story. Uh, but he, he's going to take them. He uses the story of the nation of Israel going uh, through the wilderness. If you're not familiar with the story, the nation of Israel was in captivity in Egypt for like 430 years, and they were enslaved. It was not a good situation. God shows up, miraculously delivers them with these 10 plagues and Moses standing up and, and you know, let my people go, all of that. Some of you, most of you are probably familiar with at least some of the, the big strokes of that. And then they're in the wilderness, all right? They go through the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea, and they're in the wilderness, and they're there for 40 years. And in that place, they had this, this relationship with God that they thought was secure, and yet it was in crisis, and Paul uses this as a case study, as an example for us to look at and for the, the Corinthians to look at. And he starts, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, all right? I don't want you to be unaware, he tells his audience. I don't want you to be caught off guard that your relationship might be in crisis. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized, into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all right? He kind of says, they went through their own version of baptism, all right? It wasn't the, the same thing, but they, as they part, walked through the, the parted Red Sea, that was kind of like their baptism. And he goes on, he says, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So he's saying, not only did they have their version of baptism, but they also had their version of the Lord's Supper, right? So they were baptized, they had their communion, and he goes on, he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, God was not pleased with, what's that word? Most of them. God was not pleased, not, not with some, not with a handful, not with a few of the outliers, most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, Reminds me of something Jesus said in Matthew. It's probably one of the most alarming texts in all of the New Testament. Jesus himself said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many, again, not a few, not, not just some, not a handful of outliers, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and then I'm going to tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Paul is saying, most of them, fell in the wilderness. And he's not being very subtle here. He's being very clear. He's like, they had their version of baptism. They had their version of the Lord's Supper. They kind of did their religious rites, and yet God was not pleased with most of them. You can kind of get the sense of what Paul is saying, that just because we kind of do these religious things, like get baptized and participate in the Lord's Supper, it doesn't mean that our relationship with God is in a good and secure place, that it could actually still be in crisis, that most of the people that went through this didn't make it into the promised land. And I know for some of you, this was your story. You kind of grew up in a tradition that put a lot of emphasis on things like baptism and the, the Lord's Supper, and you kind of went through it, and you put all of your eggs in that basket, and you were like, oh, I'm secure. I did that thing that I was supposed to do. Uh, and then over the years, you came to realize that you did, maybe your relationship with God was in crisis, or maybe it was just non-existent, and then you came to know Jesus and have a, a real relationship with him. And that, that was your story. And for some of you, maybe you, like me, came from a different tradition that didn't necessarily put a lot of stock in those things. And so you kind of look at it and be like, yeah, of course, those religious things, those aren't going to save anybody. Uh, but, you know, our other traditions, they also can be these, these false indicators of a secure position, 
right? I, I grew up in a tradition where as long as you prayed this magical prayer at some point in your life, uh, we called it the sinner's prayer, and as long as you prayed this prayer like you were good to go, that was our sort of passing through. But, you know, if Paul was talking to, to me and people coming from my generation, I think he would point out that, you know, the nation of Israel, they had their covenant relationship that they agreed to too, and most of them still fell in the wilderness, they still did their, their gatherings on Sunday. They showed up to church on Sunday. They, you know, for them, it was the Sabbath on Saturday. They did their, their religious things, and still most of them fell in the wilderness. You know, uh, we had those, those cards a few weeks ago where we asked you to kind of articulate why you believe that God would bring you into his promised land, and, and we were able to articulate. You know, most of you were able to articulate that you trust in Jesus. And I, I think Paul would even say that many of them were able to articulate on an index card the right answer. And still most of them didn't make it into the promised land. It's simply kind of going through these exercises. Now, don't, don't, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that these exercises are meaningless. I'm saying that they can be meaningless. I think they can be super meaningful and an important part of our faith, but Paul is saying that we could still be in a relationship in crisis even when we're checking those boxes. And so he continues on to let us see what some of these warning signs might be. He says these things occurred to them as examples for us, all right, so that we can actually learn from what happened to the nation of Israel, all right, uh, so that we can be prevented from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. This right here, this was the indication that their relationship was in crisis, that they were setting their hearts on evil things. The, the term, the word, the Greek word that's translated for setting your hearts here, it's a single word that it simply means desire, but like an inordinate amount of desire, not just like wanting something, but it's like craving, craving. Like, what do you do with those cravings of the soul, those things that you want so badly, like your whole body yearns for it, and you feel like if you don't get it, you're going to die. And Paul goes on, he's going to give four examples of how the, the Israelites kind of indulged in these soul cravings, and what happened as a result. And these four examples, they, they really kind of fall into two categories, all right? Two categories. And the first is, what do you do when you crave what God forbids? All right, there's these cravings that we have, these yearnings in our bodies, in our souls sometimes for things that God forbids. What do you do with those cravings? The nation of Israel decided to indulge in them. It says, don't be idolaters, Paul says, as some of them were. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. And he says, we shouldn't commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. The people of Israel, as they were wandering the wilderness, they had these, these cravings. Cravings for idolatry, cravings for sexual immorality. And these were things that God explicitly forbid. And they chose to indulge in them. Now, these, these examples that Paul chooses to use, these are not accidental. These are very intentional examples for uh, a few reasons. One, these are, these are actual things that happened in the nation of Israel, and these were actually 
cravings that the Corinthian church was dealing with, this craving for idolatry, this craving for sexual immorality. And these are the, the two things that when the, the, uh, the church in the first century, when they started bringing the message of Jesus to the Greco-Roman world, people that didn't have a Jewish background, they asked the question, what part of the Jewish moral law, the Old Testament moral law of God, what parts of that do we need to keep practicing as New Testament followers of Jesus? And there were two things, and guess what they were? Idolatry and sexual immorality. These were the two things that were kind of continued on from the Old Testament law that God was continuing to forbid. But there's another reason why I think Paul includes these two in particular. And it's because for both the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt and for the church in Corinth, idolatry and sexual immorality they were forbidden by God for no other reason in the minds of the audience. They were forbidden for no other reason than the fact that God forbid them. What I, what I mean is this. For the Israelites coming out of uh, Egypt, they lived in a place where the Egyptian pantheon of gods was just normal. It was the air that they breathed. The idea of there being multiple gods and worshiping multiple gods and like idolatry, it was just normal. They had no category for it being wrong until God said, don't do this. Like, for them, it just seemed normal and right and good. And the same thing with sexual immorality, the sexual ethics of Egypt. That was just the world that they lived in. They had no reason to think that any of these things were wrong until God said, no, 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 this goes against my nature and my character and my purposes. And the same thing happened in, in Corinth in the first century. There were some of these, these Christians who were previously Jewish, so they had a category for this, but those that were coming out of the Greco-Roman world where idolatry was just normal. The Roman pantheon of gods and the Greek pantheon of gods and this idolatry was just normal. This is what people did. There was no like questioning, oh, I shouldn't do this. The same thing with the sexual immorality. It was just normal. This was good. This is like an appetite that you just kind of indulge. Nobody questioned that this was bad. It wasn't until God said, don't do this, that they even had a category that this was wrong. That, that these things, they weren't wrong because they sensed somewhere. They intuitively knew, like, oh, idolatry and immorality are bad. No, they knew it only because God forbid it. It reminds me of the story of Adam and Eve when Eve was in the garden, and God forbid her, from, her and Adam from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And eventually they do, but before Eve eats the fruit, we're told that she looked at it. She looked at it. And you know what it says? So she saw it, and she saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Eve looked at this piece of fruit, and it didn't seem like this was bad. This wasn't a rotten apple. This wasn't a poisonous fruit that was going to, you know, she, she saw and knew that it was going to destroy her. She saw that, and it looked good to her, and it looked pleasing to her, and in her mind, she said, why would a good and loving God ever want to withhold from me or deny me or forbid me from being able to enjoy this thing that is good and pleasing? So she ate it. For the Corinthians in the first century and for the Israelites in the, the wilderness, idolatry and sexual immorality, these weren't things that they were like, oh, yeah, we know these things are bad, but we just want to do them anyway. These were things that up until God forbid them, they were good and pleasing to their eyes. And the only reason they had for not doing it was because they trusted 
God. That when he said, don't do this, that it was for their best interest. They trusted his authority versus their own intuition about what is good and pleasing to the eye. See, this is why we have to ask this question. What do you do when you crave what God forbids? Because if we're only willing to deny ourselves the things that God forbids that we also say, oh, those things are bad, then we're not really trusting God, are we? No, we're, we're trusting our own intuition and we're trusting our, our own sense of morality. We're doing the same thing that Eve did in the garden and the Israelites did in the wilderness and the Corinthians were doing in the first century. We're saying, these things look good and pleasing to me and there's no way a good and loving God would forbid these things from me. And the issue, of course, is that we stop trusting God. As followers of Jesus, we, we, we know, we recognize, Paul himself is the, the one who tells us that we are saved by faith, right? Not by works of the law. So we're not saved by being good moral people. We are saved by faith. But it's a faith that doesn't just trust that God can get us into the promised land. It's a faith that trusts him now while we're wandering the wilderness. The faith that trusts him when he says, don't touch the fruit. Flee from idolatry. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Even if it seems good and pleasing to the eye, if God forbids it, if we trust him, even if we don't understand the why, if we trust him, then we're going to run from the things that he forbids. And if you're in a place right now where you say, you know, I, I was baptized, I do my communion, and I, uh, you know, I, I come to church, and I pray to prayer, and I, you know, know the right answer on the card, Jesus died for my sins, and all of that, and we say, I trust him with that, but, but you're not trusting him with the things that he forbids that you crave, then there's a good chance that you aren't trusting him at all. Right? Trusting him is not just trusting him that he can get us into the promised land. It's trusting him here and now while we're wandering the wilderness to lead us to and out of the things that are good. That's the, the first category. The second category is what do you do when you crave what God withholds? Right? Because there are there are evil things that God forbids from our lives that are just kind of inherently bad, whether we see it or not. But then there are other things that aren't necessarily bad. They could even be good things, but for whatever reason, God withholds them from our lives. So the nation of Israel, they brought into the wilderness, and they were there for 40 years. 40 years. That's like twice my lifetime. What? So funny. Uh, <laughs> 40 years, I mean, that's still longer than I've been alive. Don't laugh at that one, because that one's true. <laughs> but but for, for 40 years, they're in the wilderness. And the wilderness is not an easy place to be. It's hot. There are needs that present themselves. There's a lot of good things that were being withheld from them during that time. 
God didn't usher them into the promised land. He didn't give them everything that they wanted. Not yet. They had to wait. And during that time, God was withholding these things and they had these cravings, not just for evil things, but even for good things. And you, you can relate because I know there are good things in your life that you crave, like you yearn for. And you know they're not bad, but for whatever reason, God is withholding it. What do you do with those things? Because the Israelites made a decision of how they wanted to deal with those cravings for the things that God withheld, and it cost them dearly. So what did they do that was so bad? So bad that it sent in the the destroying angel, we're told. So bad that God actually sent venomous snakes. Could you think of a worse? Okay, venomous smiters would be worse. But God sends in venomous snakes as like the repercussion. So what did they do that was so bad? We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. All right, so sexual immorality, idolatry, I understand. Like, those are kind of big-ticket sins. Like, God is going to, you know, boot you for that. But testing Christ and grumbling? Grumbling? Really? See, they had these, these cravings for things that God held, and they decided to test him. And when it talks about testing Christ here, it's not talking about like throwing themselves off a building and expecting Jesus to come and like catch them or something like that. That's not the testing that it has in mind. What, they, what Paul is talking about and what the story uh, that the nation of Israel was going through is they were, they were growing impatient. It was just taking too long for God to usher them into the promised land. And it, it, they started to test him in the sense they started to challenge him and, and question him. It says that, They spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? So this was the response of the Israelites. They were growing impatient. They started to question God. Now, this is not a, this is not a, like, a legitimate question. They weren't, like, legitimately asking, God, why are you, why are we here in this place? Like, there's a, a time and a place when you're going through, like, a wilderness season to ask God, like, Legitimately, why do you have me here? Is there something I should be learning from this? Like, that's a good question, but they're not a- actually asking that. When they're asking, why have you brought us up out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're, they're actually questioning his goodness. They're questioning whether or not he's trustworthy. See, they still trusted that he might take them to the promised land, but they weren't trusting him in the wilderness. So they, they tested him and they started to grumble and complain. And when it talks about them grumbling, and it talks about their, their complaining in the wilderness, back in Numbers, when it captures this story, it actually, it talks about why God punished them and what it is about grumbling. It actually says that because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? That, that is why God punished them. They had rejected the Lord. That with our our grumbling and our complaining and our challenging God and our questioning his goodness, we are actually rejecting him. We're rejecting his authority. We're rejecting his goodness. We're, We're saying, we're verbalizing those moments of complaint is, I see what you're doing and I don't think it's good. And we're the ones who are passing judgment on God. Every complaint, 
is a critique. It's a criticism of the God that allowed that thing. Every time we're in a place where God is withholding something from our lives and we feel like we deserve or we need it and we are verbalizing those complaints and those grumblings, we're critiquing God. Even if, feel, even if it feels like we're critiquing the weather uh, or the traffic or the politicians or those people or, or those people, what we're actually doing is we're, we're critiquing the God that allowed those circumstances to be. We're passing judgment on him. We're saying, God, why, why are you doing this? Why are you just letting this happen? Aren't you good? And Paul is drawing attention to that. He's saying that is not a subtle thing. That is not a small thing. That is us critiquing the God of the universe. And that is us saying, we don't trust you. See, it doesn't matter what we can write on an index card saying, oh yeah, I trust in Jesus, but do we actually trust him? Do we trust him when he is withholding the things that we're craving? And I, you know, look, I, I, I've been there. I've been in that place where I just, I, I cried out to God and I, I didn't know, I didn't understand how a good God could do this. And I, I've placed those accusations before him and I had to repent. I had to come and recognize, oh my goodness, how could I accuse him of that? That is deeply offensive after everything that he's done for me. That is not a small thing. And yet, I think as, as followers of Jesus, we're quick to be like, all right, all right, we'll, we'll avoid the things that God forbids. But when it comes to these things that God withholds, we can be pretty quick to move into that attitude of grumbling and complaining just like the rest of the world. And, and we're New Yorkers, uh, so my wife is uh, not from around here, and uh, she would often say that complaining is just the language of New Yorkers. Like, if we stopped complaining, she said, like, what would anybody talk about? Like, that's all, that's all we do. We complain about the weather. We complain about the traffic. We complain it's too hot, and then we complain it's too cold. And, uh, and then we complain about, you know, those people, and we complain about, the, you know, our bosses and our jobs and the people that work for us, and we just, we kind of just are in this spirit of grumbling. And every time we're doing this, we are actually critiquing not, not just the people or the situations that we're in. We're actually critiquing the God who put us into these situations and we're, we're critiquing his goodness. And I, I want to be careful here because there is a place to, to feel the pain and discomfort of this world that we're in. Even Paul, he, he talks about how this world, it, it kind of experiences the pains of childbirth. Like, we're in the wilderness right now. You get that, right? Like, we're not in the promised land. God is not going to make this feel like the promised land. We're in the wilderness. And it was this way for the, the Corinthians as well. It was actually worse for the Corinthians because as they were starting to follow Jesus and they were starting to avoid things like idolatry and sexual immorality, it was very costly, like financially, it was costly. Like they were losing their jobs. They were losing business. They were losing their social network, like all of that. Like we have it pretty good. They were losing a lot more because they were living in the wilderness, but we're living in that wilderness as well. And it's a tough place. And, and it is okay for us to like express like this doesn't feel good. 
right? So I'm not saying that we need to like bottle up those emotions and be like, everything's cheery and happy and sunny all the time. No, no. Paul says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our entrance into the promised land. All right, so there's, there's an experience of the pain and discomfort. I'm not saying that we should like, be fake about that. But can we be in the midst of those, those cravings for the things that God is withholding and still trust him in the midst of it? And rather than crying out against him, speaking against him, rejecting him with our words, can we, can we express maybe our confusion that's one thing, trying to understand what's going on. That's okay. But still trust that he is God and he is in control and he is good. This is what Paul is trying to point us toward. He says that these things that happened to the Israelites, they happened to them as examples and they were written down as warnings for us. All right? So Paul isn't here saying if you are grumbling and complaining or if you're engaging in Sexual immorality or idolatry. He's not saying, you know, shame on you, die, or like fix it or anything. No, he's actually saying, no, no, these are, these are examples. These are warnings, all right? He's trying to capture our attention and say, this, it's not too late. These are warnings for us to draw attention to the fact that if we're in this place where our cravings for what God forbids cause us to do it anyway, or if our cravings for what God withholds leads to the spirit of grumbling and complaining, then we're in that place that the Israelites were, and we, we need to like, let the alarm bells go off in our heads, warn us that we are not trusting God. And even if we're saying we trust him to get us into the promised land, if we're not trusting him in the wilderness, then like the nation of Israel, we're in a precarious place. These are warnings for us. On whom the culmination of the ages has come. So this brings us where we started. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. All right, so he, he, he reminds us, he says, this is just a warning. I'm not saying this to shame you. I'm not saying this to, you know, make you feel guilty because, you know, maybe your trust in God is not what you thought it was. No, I'm doing this to draw your attention to it so you could do something about this. And he doesn't just leave it here. He presses in and he says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. He's saying, what you're going through, you're not alone. We're in the wilderness. We're all in the wilderness. And it is common to mankind. But then he says, God is faithful. All right? God is faithful. See, this is the, the remedy for a heart that doesn't trust God is to see his faithfulness. And for us, to be honest, all right, maybe I don't trust God like I thought I did. Maybe I, I paid lip service, but really my trust was in these other cravings that I've been indulging in or these other cravings that I've been grumbling because God has been withholding and I've, I've been leaning on these things instead of the God who is faithful. It says God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, we have to be careful with this. Because this is a verse that people like to take out of context. Uh, he says that God is faithful. And when you're tempted, you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. Whatever you're going through, whatever craving that you have that you feel like, I have to have it. He's saying, you don't. God is faithful. He'll give you the strength to endure 
that you don't have to indulge it. You don't have to complain if it's not there. And I know for some of you, these, these things are hard. Right? I, don't, I don't know everyone's story, but I know for some of you, some of the things that God are withholding, these are not light, momentary troubles. These are heavy, heavy things. Years of pain and discomfort and loneliness and rejection and disappointment. These are heavy things. I'm not, I don't want to belittle these things. But he is saying that God will carry you through. But notice this. He says, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Notice that word. He doesn't say that God is going to eliminate the temptation. He says that you can endure it. You don't have to endure things that are easy, right? This is an indication that it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. It was hard. Those 40 years in the wilderness, it was hard for the nation of Israel. But every day they woke up, and guess what? There was food. It wasn't good food. (laughs) They got sick of it. But they, they had what they needed. God provided, and he was present with them so that they could endure the wilderness and make it to the promised land. Not saying that God's going to make it easy, but he will give you his supernatural power to endure. He is faithful. If you feel like giving in and throwing in the towel, don't do it yet. God is faithful. He will empower you to endure it. And God is not just faithful to help you endure when you're tempted. God is also faithful to help you recover when you fall into temptation. Because his faithfulness is that good. So uh, when the the nation of Israel, they were grumbling and complaining because it was taking forever to get through the wilderness. uh, And God sent the snakes in, uh, which is a really just... Why snakes? But he sends the snakes in, and then the nation of Israel, they, they are like crying out to God. It's like, oh no, these snakes, they're killing us. And, and God, he's faithful in that moment. He hears their cries, and he, he relents. And it's a very strange story. You can read it in, in Numbers. But uh, God tells Moses, all right, so uh, here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you fashion a snake out of bronze and put it on a stick and hold it up in the middle of the camp. Hold it up, raise it up, and then anybody who gets bitten by one of these venomous snakes, if they just look to this snake that's been lifted up, they'll be healed. Very strange, very odd story. It feels completely out of place. But Jesus then makes sense of it in the New Testament. Jesus, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. In the same way that that snake was lifted up in the wilderness, that people could look to it and be saved if they were bitten by the snakes, consumed by the the consequences of their own sinfulness, if they look to it and can be healed. And even though you might not be familiar with these couple of verses, you're probably familiar with where this leads. It goes right into, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish have eternal life. When Jesus talks about him being lifted up, like the snake being lifted up in the wilderness, he's not talking about being lifted up to be seated at the right hand of the Father. No, Jesus is talking about being lifted up on that cross and suffering and dying for us so that in those moments where we do fall and the temptation that God provided a way out, but we still fall to it There's time to repent, and we can look to him lifted up on that cross.
and find forgiveness. For everyone who believes. But this belief, Paul reminds us through this passage, this belief, it's not identified by these religious rites of baptism or communion or praying a prayer or writing the right answer on a card. This belief in him is not simply belief that he can carry you into the promised land. It's a belief that starts now while we're living in the wilderness. Are you willing to trust that he is faithful? Are you willing to trust that when he forbids certain things that look good to the eye and pleasing, say no. Are you willing to trust him that when he's withholding things that you desperately crave, maybe even good things, you're able to trust him and say, I don't know why, and I don't need to, but I know that you are faithful and you are good because you're the one Gabe, your one and only son, so that I might not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, our experience in the wilderness can be so hard and trying, and there's so many just strong cravings that we have for things that aren't good, that seem good to us, and cravings for things that are good, but you're just withholding them from us, God, and it is easy for us to lose faith in you in those moments and, and deny your goodness and reject you, judge you, condemn you, and yet you're the one who willingly condemned your son so that we might have life. God, I pray that for any of us here who are struggling with whether or not we can trust you in our our wilderness experience, that that we'd be reminded today that you are faithful. You are good. Father, and I pray that if there are any of us who uh, feel like we're standing secure, but our relationship with you is in crisis, I pray that you'd let us see those warning signs. Assess where we are, God, not to to scare us or to shame us, but we might respond to those warning signs and place our trust in you. Not just that you'll get us through to the promised land, but that you will be with us here in the midst of the wilderness. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.